Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. We live in a world that has a a lot of important issues that we have to deal with uh, pretty much day to day. There are social issues that are, are vitally important. There are, are financial issues we have to deal with. There are historical issues we have to deal with. I mean, currently, uh, Hamas is at war with Israel, or Israel's at war with Hamas, uh, but really specifically Palestine. And it's easy uh, as believers to stand with Israel because the Bible tells us to, and I do. Don't, don't sit there and think, what's he about to say? He's going to, no, I'm not. I stand with Israel a thousand percent, and I, I believe they have the right to do whatever they're doing. Uh, so don't think for a second I support terrorists or those who massacred uh, innocent women and children. Uh, however, it's a complicated issue. Uh, when you look at the history of it and the politics of it, it's, it's not cut and dry. There's a, a lot of, of, of debate and hurt on each side, and so it's a very complicated issue. Uh, right now in America, we are gearing up for another presidential election <sighs> with a lot of issues. I wish Jesus would come back before the election. I'd be, I'd be fine with that. If before the ads started coming and the debate started happening and y'all started posting things on Facebook that make me cringe, uh, I wish the Lord would come back. But we're facing some, uh, some issues in America. You know, women's rights versus the rights of the unborn. Uh, LGBT rights with the right versus the rights of Christians. We have issues about how to deal with inflation, how to deal with unemployment, how to deal with illegal with illegal immigration, and all these are issues. And there there are arguments on both sides of the aisle, and people get very passionate about each one of these things. And especially in these political climates, we can decide this is the most important issue right now. You know, this issue right here is more important than anything else in the world. However, as Christians. There's an issue that should supersede every other issue that we deal with in this world, and that's the issue of God's kingdom. His kingdom and what we do for it is the most important issue we face as believers, but it goes deeper than that. It's the most important issue that every person who's ever been born has to deal with, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they grow up in a Christian community or another area where they've never heard the name of God, everyone has to deal with the issue of God's kingdom. Who is God? Is He relevant? What does does His kingdom have to do with us today in 2023? Jesus tells us that what we do with God is the most important thing in our life. It's more important than where you work. It's more important than who you marry. It's more important than where you go to school. It's more important than what you do with your children. What you do with God is the most important thing, the most important decision you'll ever face. And most people let this critical subject and this critical decision slip right through their fingers. And usually it's not because they they reject it outright, but because they don't think it matters. They don't think it's it's that important. They don't think it carries that much weight. Now, last week, we looked at the value of one person to God. One sheep, one coin, one son 
matters to God. This morning, I'm going to show you how much you matter to Him. How much you mean to Him. I'm going to ask you a question. It's a question every single one of us, if we haven't done it, need to take care of it or need to wrestle with it now, but we all need to check ourselves throughout our lives. And here's the question. Have you really received Christ as your Savior? Have you truly accepted the gift of salvation? Or do you just think it's not that important? Look down in Luke chapter 14, start reading in verse number 7. The Bible says, And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how, how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man that, that, than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him that come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden to go and sit down in the lowest room, and when he that bade thee cometh, uh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then thou shalt have, have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, uh, this, this teaching right here, it comes in the middle of Jesus teaching a lot of parables about the kingdom. It's right after the, the, the sheep and the coin and the prodigal son. And so there's a lot of really incredible teaching about God and the kingdom of God going on. And then all of a sudden, he just gives this kind of strange advice about how to handle yourself in some uh, social situations. And he gives a story, hey, you're invited to a dinner party by, maybe it's a, your boss or the president of your company, you're invited to this dinner party and you show up and you see a seat right at the beginning of the head of the table near your boss or near the CEO or whatever, and so you think, man, I'm going to go sit there. And so you go and you sit down at the head of the table and you just you think you're all something, and all of a sudden the host has to come to you and say, what are you doing here? You're at the kiddie table. And he goes, that's embarrassing when all of a sudden you got to you know, pick up your, your water glass and your tea glass and, you know, shuffle to the kitty table because you thought you were something you're not. He goes, instead, come and sit, sit at the kitty table. That way when the host sees you, he goes, why are you at the kitty table? we got a place for you up here at that. And, you know, that, that's what he's telling you to do. And look, that's great advice to keep from being embarrassed in some, some good situations. Uh, but, you know, what's it really going to do with the kingdom of God? What's it got to do with salvation? That, you know, don't be you know, embarrassing in social part and at parties, you know, let people tell you where to go. Don't assume you're bigger than you really are. Just be yourself. Uh, but again, this comes in the middle of Jesus talking peril about, about his kingdom. Uh, and then, of course, he says, you know, of course, you know, don't embarrass yourself at parties. But there's a lot more being taught in this, in this, this teaching. And he shows it to us in the next parable. So look at chapter 14 again. Start reading in verse number 15. And when one of them sat at meat with him, heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And he sent his servants at supper time to say to them that they were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready." During this time, when you would have a feast, you would send out two different invitations. 
Uh, kind of like now, if you're getting married, you send out two invitations, a save-the-date invitation, and then an official invitation you're supposed to RSVP to. Well, in this time, the RSVP invitation went out first because they couldn't really get specific. They couldn't say, hey, be here Saturday the 28th at 6 p.m. for dinner because stuff could come up. You know, during this time, you couldn't, you know, go to the caterer and have the caterer make you a meal. You had to provide the meat for yourself. So you had to raise your own livestock and kill it, or you had to go out and hunt it and kill it. But whatever, you had to prepare your meat yourself, you had to prepare your meals yourself. Uh, you know, you couldn't set an exact day and an exact time. Uh, people coming from out of town, you know, they may run into some trouble on the road and be one or two days later than normal. So you couldn't give an exact time. Basically what you would do is you would send out this RSVP invitation saying, hey, I'm throwing a great feast. It's going to be around this time. Will you come? And then people would RSVP, yes, I'm coming to the party. Then when the party was, was ready and everything was set, you would send out the second invitation and say, hey, everything's ready. Y'all come on and eat. And so that's exactly what happened. Uh, during this time, the people who received the invitation told the host, you're throwing a party, we're going to be there. Look at verse 18. And they, with all one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Now look, I know right now the, the, there's YouTube, and there's a lot of YouTube DIY home flippers that will buy a house sight unseen for content to, you know, remodel that house or whatever. But who besides a YouTuber buys a house without ever looking at it? Have you all ever done that? Anybody ever bought a house with ever look, without even looking at it on Zillow or whatever? No, we all look. I mean, I look at houses I'm never going to afford right now on Zillow. I mean, I've looked at houses down on Smith Mountain Lake that are on their own island for like $8.7 million. For that day, I win the billion-dollar you know, lotto jackpot that I never play. Uh, but I figure if God wants me to have it, one day I'll walk outside and there'll be a lottery ticket on my front store. So whatever. Uh, but, you know, no one, no one buys a, a house without ever seeing it. And if, if he did, if some, you know, great deal came up, and something happened, somebody's like, hey, you can buy this, this, this couple acres of property for pennies on the dollar, and he brought it, and he bought it. Why does he have to go see it right now? It's not going anywhere. It's not like if he doesn't go get to this land right now, it's going to blow away. So he's already got the deed to it. He can wait to look at it tomorrow. Then look at verse number 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Now this one doesn't make sense either. Five yoke of oxen is ten oxen. He's bought ten oxen. This is, this is like buying a luxury car today, is how expensive it is, without ever looking at it, without ever test driving it. Again, you don't buy a bunch of oxen for that amount of money without already having proved them. So why has he got to go prove them now? They should have already been proved. So again, this is not a good excuse. Then look at verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife... Therefore, I cannot come. Basically, he's saying, you know, my, my wife said no, no guys' night. You know, my wife ex-nayed guys' night out. No, but, I mean, again, this guy, he's not, he's not going on a honeymoon. He's not, and again, sometimes, you know, in this culture, there was arranged marriages, so maybe he hasn't met her. He has met her, according to the context. So he's not saying, hey, I just got married. Me and my wife are going on a honeymoon. He's just like, I got, I'm married now. 
And, you know, so my wife, instead of going to an elaborate, fancy dinner party, my wife wants to stay at home watching college football with me and eating pizza rolls. That doesn't happen. No wife wants to do that. So, I mean, again, these are, these are very poor excuses. They're not good excuse, excuses for getting out of a commitment. So I'm, I'm telling you now, if you want to get out of a commitment, come up with better excuses than these guys, all right? Let's look at verse number 21. So the servant came. <coughs> so the servant came and showed his lord these things. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, "Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring hither in the poor, the maimed, and the halt, and the blind." So there are two shocking things about this story. The first one is the guys who received the original invitation. And again, we've talked about this in previous weeks. In this time period, you would invite someone to a party. The, you, you, you invited people who could benefit you in some way. You invited other wealthy people, other prominent people, because you wanted to kind of get in with them and you wanted them to kind of owe you something. And so these, these men who have been invited to this party, they are, are, are powerful, they are rich, they are prominent in the community, and they should have been there because they accepted the invitation when it was first given. But when time comes to eat, they're all like, you know what, I'd rather stay here and watch Netflix. I don't want to... I don't want to go out. And look, I get it. Sometimes people ask us to do stuff like, yeah, and then when the time comes, I'm like, you know what, I'd rather stay home. Uh, always, I'd rather stay home. I would always rather stay home. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, these guys, like, you know, they take up with some lame excuse. And so the first shocking thing is the people who should have been there, the ones who were invited, the ones who the party was made for, refused to come. The second thing is who the host invites to the party. He says, go out and get the poor. Go get the lame. Go get the crippled. Go get the unwanted of our community. Then look at verse 23, 22. And the servant said, Lord, I have done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Highway people and hedge people are lower on the, the societal uh, chart than the lame and the wounded. These are people who, they're not just undesired, they are, they are, un, they are outside of society. They don't even live in the city. No, these are the, the prostitutes. These are the lepers. These are the ones no one wants anything to do with. They are cast out of society. And the Master says, go get them. Go get the ones no one wants. Because the ones I invited refused, go get the ones no one wants to come in here. Then look at verse number 24. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall... So Jesus at the end here, He kind of switches to the first person. He's telling this story. It's in third person. The Master said, the Master said, the Master said. And then at the very end He goes, I say, those people who were supposed, those people who were invited at first, they're not going to taste my dinner. They're not going to enjoy my party. They're not going to enjoy what I have to offer because they rejected me. They refused me. So I'm going after anyone and everyone that will come after me. This story uh, shows, he's telling them how this story applies to them. Of course, he's talking about how the Jews had rejected him for, for centuries. They had been invited to this party. They had been invited through the prophets 
through the, the, the Gospels, through Moses and the Law, through Isaiah and through Ezekiel and through the prophets of God proclaiming that the Messiah would come. They had received the invitation. They had RSVP'd. We're looking forward to joining the Messiah when He gets here. But then Jesus comes and they reject Him. They, he, he proves He is the Messiah. If you've, you've been coming to our Sunday nights and you, you know what we're talking about, of course, there were three things that He had to do that were said the only the Messiah would do. You know, uh, casting out a, a deaf demon, healing a non-Jewish leper, and, uh, and raising someone from the dead. Things that He did specifically that proved He was the Messiah. And after He proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, He was who He said He was. He was God in the flesh, come to redeem mankind. The Jewish leaders rejected Him. They made everybody that followed them turn their back on Him. And Jesus said, I invited you. I got this party ready for you. And you reject me? Now it's going out to anyone that will accept it. Now it's going to the Gentiles. They were preoccupied with the day-to-day lives. They were preoccupied with making a living, with living, looking out for themselves. So Jesus says God was turning from them, but He was sending the message to the outsiders. He is extending the invitation to the Gentiles. They realize the incredible opportunity they have to be invited to this feast. And look at verse 25. <clears throat> and there went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This, this bothers Jesus so much. This rejection of the Jews and, and just turning their back on him them turning their back on him. It, it bothers him so much that he turns to the crowd and says something shocking. He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. You have to hate your wife. You have to hate your brother and sister. Connor says, I got that covered, buddy. I hate my sister. Amen. Uh, you have to hate everyone if you're going to follow me. Now, Hate's a strong word, right? I mean, I say I hate a lot of things. I, I hate Virginia Tech. I hate Duke basketball. I don't mind them in football. I was hoping they'd have a great year. They're having a good year. I was hoping they'd beat Florida State. I don't mind. But basketball, man, I hate them. I hate them. But I don't really hate them. But hate's a, hate's a strong word. And why would a loving God tell us to hate anything? He's not really telling us to hate. He's using hate in comparison to how we feel towards Him. So when I say I hate tech, it's how I feel about UVA compared to how I, I hate tech compared to my love for them. My love for April means I hate every other woman. I don't hate you ladies. I love y'all, but compared to how I feel about her, yeah, I hate you. And that's what you, Jesus is saying, compared to how you feel about me, Compared to what I should mean to you, everything else should be hated by you. Our love for Him should make how we feel about everyone else and everything else feel like hate. The invitation to be with Jesus, 
The invitation to join Him at His table. The invitation of salvation is more important than anything else in our life. Any other loyalty, any other relationship. Now, Jesus is showing us two reasons that most people miss the invitation of salvation He's offered to all of us. Here's the first one. Number one, they don't see the importance of the invitation. None of these guys gave an evil reason as to why they couldn't come to the party. None of them said, you know what, I would come, but i got a drug deal scheduled for right then, and uh, I can't make it. Or, you know what, I would go, but me and my guys, we're going to Vegas for a bachelor party. It's going to get all... None of them had, you know, sinful excuses. I bought some property. I bought a car. I just got married. I want to spend time with my wife. These are good reasons to not go to something that you had planned to go to. They just don't give any... The problem isn't that they're doing evil things. The problem is they don't realize how important and how incredible the invitation they received was. All excuses are lame compared to the invitation to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. Even if they're legitimate. They're not legitimate when weighed against the importance of an invitation. So, you know, whenever I'm studying uh, for a message, for my sermons, I, I, I try to shut everything out. Uh, you know, I'll get phone calls. Uh, I'll put my phone on Do Not Disturb, but only a few people can come through on Do Not Disturb. But I, don't, I, I ignore texts. I'll ignore phone calls unless April calls me. Why? Because I've learned if I don't answer her phone call, she gets very, very angry with me. And because what she said... Now, look. 99% of the time, why she's calling is, hey, can you pick up some mayonnaise on the way home? That's not important. But she's important. And she may have something really important to say. She may say, hey, that lottery ticket showed up. We're moving to Hawaii. Don't tell the kids. She may have something important to say. But I don't know. It doesn't matter what she's trying to tell me. She's important. So she takes precedence over everything and anything else in my life. That's how God's invitation to be with us should feel to us. He is the most important person we could ever spend time with. He is the creator of everything. Every breath we take is, an, is a gift from Him. Nothing exists without Him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no greater invitation than the one we have from God to join Him at His feast, to join Him at His table, to be a part of His family. And any excuse we can give pales in comparison to the importance of that invitation. There was a professor at Duke University, figures, who would challenge his Christian students every semester. Every semester he would begin by asking how many of his students were Christians. They'd all raise their hand. And then he, or many of them would raise their hand. And then he asked, how many of you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And of course, everyone who said they were a Christian raised their hand. And then he says, how many of you have read the whole thing? A lot less hands went up. They would ask, how many of you have read the entire Twilight series? Well, a bunch of hands went up when they, when they got that. And he always said, I don't think you really believe the Bible is the Word of God, because if you did, you'd have read all of it. I tend to agree with him. You know, there are two types of, of atheists in the world. There are intellectual atheists, and there are practical atheists. 
Intellectual atheists just, they do not believe God exists. No God, in no way, God doesn't exist. And them, if they live their life like God doesn't exist, I expect that. You know, I expect sinners to act like sinners. I expect atheists to act like atheists. But then there's practical atheists. They say they believe in God. They may be sitting in this church right now. They say they believe that the Bible is the Word of God. They say they believe in God, but their life doesn't show it. They don't live like they believe in God. If you truly believe in God and you don't give any and you don't give weight to his word or you don't give weight to what he says, then you are a practical atheist. And look, I know most of you, some of, probably a lot of you here, uh, especially over on this side, uh, Brees and them, have not read Twilight. I get that. And if you have, I don't care. Look, I don't I'm not judging you if you've read Twilight or Harry Potter or any of it. I don't care. Read what you're going to read. But if you know more about Twilight and Harry Potter or your fantasy football team or things like that you know about God, then you're a practical atheist. Now, if you're here and you're like, I just don't believe God exists. I do not believe in God and I'm not going to give any weight to His Word. Look, I get that. If you don't believe in God, then you really should not believe in His Word. But maybe you're an agnostic. You're like, maybe God exists. Maybe He doesn't. I just... I don't know, and I don't care. Look, that makes no sense to me. Either God exists, and what He says is true and vital and important, or He doesn't, and don't worry about it. But I don't know, I'll see in the end, makes no sense to me. You're going to find out in the end, and you're going to find out you were wrong. The, God and what you do with Him is the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. The Bible is either true, or it's not. And if it is true then what it says is the most important truth that we could ever learn and ever share with anyone. It says that everyone who's ever been born is going to spend eternity in one of two places. Heaven with God for eternity, which is a place of joy and peace and love, or eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell where there's burning, there's torment, there's agony, there's pain, there's hurt. And look, here's the thing, a lot of Christians today, we believe in heaven. We'll sing about heaven, like we sing, you know, victory in Jesus, I got that mansion in heaven. You do not have a mansion in heaven, by the way. I, I love that song, but I hate that verse. You don't get a mansion. Uh, you don't want a mansion. You don't get a pool. All right, anyway, that's a... We believe in heaven. We're going to go to heaven. We're going to spend eternity with God. We're going to, you know, sh uh, swim in the Crystal River and fish and, you know, have a wonderful time. But hell is just a metaphor for death. If there's one, there's got to be the other. So if we as believers believe in heaven, then we have to believe in hell and they are both real. And you are going to go to one, of, one, one or the other when you die. There's no in-between. There's no, well... He was, was kind of good, so we'll send him to purgatory and he can work. No, no, no. When you die, it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. We will spend eternity in one of two places. If heaven is real, then hell is real. You can't have one about, without the other. And Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he doesn't want us to go there. 
He doesn't want us to spend eternity separated from Him. And if what Jesus said about, is real about heaven and hell, then we are doomed because He said there's no way to get to heaven except through Him. He says, no man comes to the Father but by Me. He came to do what we could never do. We deserve hell. Period. We can never earn our way out of hell. Period. So Jesus came and did what we could never do. He lived a perfect, sinless life because we never could. When He died on the cross, He didn't die for His sins. He died for my sins and your sins and the world's sins. He absorbed the wrath of God for everything I ever did wrong, ever will do wrong, ever have done wrong, and the same thing for you. He was buried and rose three days later to prove He was God in the flesh and to redeem us to God the Father. He bled for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. He said He's the only way to God. And if that is true, we cannot take that invitation lightly or neglect it. It's the most important choice you will ever make. What are you going to do with God? Most people miss Jesus because they don't realize how important He is or how important His invitation is. Jesus says, what you do with me is more important than property. It's more important than family. It's more important than children. It's more important than anything else in the world. The person who has God has everything. But the person who misses God, no matter how well they do on earth, they've lost everything. But the story gives us a second reason. People miss this invitation. Number two, they don't think they are worthy of the invitation. You know, the people that had received the invitation initially and had accepted it before they said they couldn't come, they were the people you would want at a party. They were the, the wealthy, the, the prosperous, the politically influential, the, the people that could help you in society. They don't come, so the, the, the host says, go get me the lame, the poor the crippled, the homeless, the unwanted, the unwashed, the rejected, the forgotten. To the audience, this is crazy. You don't want those people at your party because they can't do anything for you. You know, they're not going to turn around and say, hey, great party, my place next week. They don't have a place. So they can do nothing for you. You invite the wealthy, the powerful, the connected to your party. But God says, I'm going to invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the rejected, the doomed, because that's who I was before Him. That's who I was before salvation. When you see how holy, how pure, how awesome God is, then you're going to see yourself as you truly are, which is worthless. You know, the Bible tells us that all we are, that everything we do, no matter how good we are, our righteousness, our good deeds are vile and disgusting in the sight of God. All the things we do to try to do good are disgusting in God's eyes. A lot of people miss the invitation because they don't know how wicked we are. We don't realize how disgusting we truly are and we don't think we belong at all. You know, here's the thing. We have nothing to offer to God. You don't come to God and say, well, God, you know what? I'm a, I'm a CEO of a 
major Fortune 500 company. I make a lot of money. I could do some good work for your kingdom. You should, you know, this is what I bring to the table. Or God, I'm a, you know, if you're me, God, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an attractive man. I'm a greatest speaker since John the Baptist. I bring a lot to your kingdom. I bring nothing to God. I'm worthless. And look, when you realize how worthless you are before God, why would you come to His party? You have nothing to bring Him. Here's the thing. After the service, we're going to have a fellowship meal. We're all going to go downstairs. We're going to eat. We're going to have some, some good food. Uh, Miss Trudy, I think, brought her banana pudding. If she didn't, she's kicked out of the church. Uh, <laughs> but we got, and so you, you may be here and you're sitting here thinking, well, I didn't, I didn't bring anything. I didn't bring a potluck dish, so I can't come. No, 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 no. You didn't bring anything. Guess what? You're welcome. Why? Because we prepared for that. Trudy makes two banana puddings, one big one for me and then a little one for y'all to share. Uh, but we got all got we got plenty. So don't so and that's how we feel. Like I can't come to this party because I don't have you know, when you come to a party and all of a sudden you realize it's a potluck dish and you didn't bring anything, feel kind of like, ugh. I forgot to bring something. I always feel bad when we're having a potluck di- di- meal with somebody and they're like, you can bring paper towels. Like, well, my, all right, well, I know where I stand in a cooking chart here. But you, you want to bring something. So coming to God with nothing, we don't like that. We don't like coming with nothing. And so if we think, I, can't, I have nothing to bring Him, why would we, why would we come at all? Jesus teaches us throughout the Gospel there is nothing we can bring to God. We are poor, we are lame, we are crippled, we are enemies and sinners against God. We deserve hell, period. Anything you think makes you worthy doesn't. We can't fix ourselves. God's invitation to His feast is not based on your ability. It's based on His grace. It's based on His love for you. Through Jesus, we are accepted. He lived a life we never could live, but we were supposed to live. He lived a worthy life. He he died a death that we were condemned to die, but He took our place and rose again as a gift to all humanity. So that all who put their faith and trust in His death, burial, and resurrection as payment for their sins would be welcome at God's table. See, we spend our lives trying to be worthy of something we can never be worthy of. That's what religion does. Religion gives us a list of things to do and not do to make God happy. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel tells us that we never could be worthy. We are worthless. We are only made worthy and made clean through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Through His invitation to join Him at His table. We have to accept it, and you never will, until you see you're not worthy of it. But that's what makes it grace. That's what makes it love and mercy. We deserve the low place with God, but Jesus took our place to give us the high place with Him. Look at verse 26 and 27 again. For which of you, intending to build a tower, uh, sitteth not uh, down first and counteth the cost, whether you have sufficient to finish it? Nope, that's 28. I'm like, that doesn't make no sense to my message. All right. (laughs) 
If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the greatest invitation you're ever going to receive. Greater than any any wedding. If you were tomorrow, or I know who my crowd is, if, you know, a couple years ago when another president was in office, you got an invitation to the White House. I know most of y'all now, the president, y'all wouldn't go. I would. They got good China there. Uh, But anyway, if you got an invitation to a White House to visit the president, a president you liked, that's not nearly as good as Jesus' invitation to join him at his father's table. The invitation for salvation. It's so important it should take priority over everything else in our life. He offers an invitation to accept his gift of salvation when we have nothing to offer him. So here's the thing. Stop making excuses why you can't accept it. Well, I've got to get my life right first. No, you don't. Well, I've got to... I gotta do, I gotta do this first. No, you don't. Well, this is more important. There is nothing more important than what you're going to do with Jesus. Stop thinking you can earn it because you can't. What you do with this invitation is the most important decision you're ever gonna make. Jesus wants you to accept his invitation, to accept his gift of prayer. You just have to do it. See, the Bible tells every single one of us we're sinners before God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That word all in the Greek means everybody. It means you, your younger sister who thinks she never does anything wrong. Yeah, she's a sinner. Your mother-in-law who thinks she doesn't do anything wrong. Oh, woo! She's a sinner. Can I get an amen? Fred? No, no Fred. All right. We're all sinners. For the wages of sin is death. That's not just you die and you get a good night's rest. That's Separation from God in a real place called hell. The Bible says in Revelation that sin and hell, that those who were without not not in the book of life were cast into hell, the lake of fire. That's the second death. God says, "You, because you're a sinner, you deserve hell, and there's nothing you can do about it." But God commended His love. God showed His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, His enemy rejecting Him cursing Him, spit on Him, pulling His beard out, crucifying Him while we hated Him. He loved us so much, He died in our place, was buried and rose three days later to redeem us to God the Father. And all we have to do, say, God, I know I'm a sinner, deserving of hell, condemned to hell, no hope of my own, but I know You died for me. I know You shed Your blood for me. I know you rose again for me. And God, I put my faith and trust in what you did on the cross to pay my sin debt. That's it. No no hoops to jump through. No class to take. There are steps afterwards, but all the invitation is is Jesus saying, hey, I love you so much, I did for you what you couldn't do. Would you accept my gift? And all this, say, yeah, I accept your gift of salvation. That's it. If you have never done that, the Bible says today is a day of salvation. Don't leave here doubting. Don't leave here wondering. Nail it down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.